You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, well, let me tell you guys a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian family. Uh, both my parents sort of raised me to love and to follow Jesus. And um, it's sort of one of those things where I, I don't really remember a time in my life where I didn't have that sort of desire to want to follow Jesus. And, and my parents grew me up in the church. Both my parents were part of planting a church in North Austin about 25 years ago that has had a, a vast and significant impact on the city of Austin. Uh, I grew up uh, memorizing Bible verses, going on mission trips uh, to Mexico every summer, leading Bible clubs uh, for little neighborhood kids, Uh, then on into college, sharing my faith weekly on the University of Texas campus. Uh, Providence Church, which is a two-year-old church plant, is actually the fourth church plant that I have been uh, a part of. Uh, Like, this thing is just, this is the environment that I grew up in. And through all that, uh, I have come to appreciate the power of the gospel to change all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. And from the beginning, we have prayed as a church that we would be a gospel-centered church, uh, that we would believe that the gospel changes everything, right? That it doesn't just apply to one sector of my life. Uh, It's like it's not just these set of beliefs that I subscribe to. It's not a code of ethics, right? The gospel changes all of life. We have prayed and asked God that he would, uh, by his grace, make us a church that is marked by the power of the gospel to change us personally as individuals, uh, that we would um, see people hear the gospel for the first time and place their faith in Jesus, that our community would put the gospel uh, on display in the way that we just naturally love one another. And in the first two years of our church, again, by his grace, we have seen God do these very things that we've been praying for. We've seen people profess faith in Jesus for the very first time and begin following him. We've seen lots of people baptized. Just this year, actually in the past four months, we've multiplied four gospel communities. This week, on Thursday night, I was in someone's living room because we were multiplying a gospel community. We're multiplying a movement of the gospel of God's movement in this city. God has been at work in our lives as a church. We've prayed for all of these things, but it's still surprising when it happens because it's always beyond our own understanding, our own abilities. You see, the power of the gospel is supernatural. And that's how God accomplishes his mission through the church. He does things that point to his presence and his power so that he, as the creator of the universe, gets all of the glory. But what happens in the life of a church, and I think in any organization really, is that people start to get comfortable or even complacent. And it's not very long before we start to settle for less than the supernatural. You know, like things like having a nice service to go to, making new friends, being a part of a good Bible study. These are all good things, but these are all things that we can just do in our own strength. And I'm not saying that we're quite there yet as a church. I don't think we're a complacent church. But I just know my own heart. I know that despite my upbringing, despite all the ways in which I have seen God work through the power of the gospel to change all kinds of people, I know how easy it is to drift from that vision and to lose sight of the centrality of the gospel just in my own life. 
And when that happens, the work of the gospel gets short-circuited in our lives, and the church community begins to grow stale, it begins to grow fruitless. And so every so often, just like in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, God comes and he says, look, I want you to remember what I did in the beginning so that you might be aroused in your awareness of my power and grace. Like, I want you to remember how I have provided for you, how I have taken care of you. I want you to remember what I'm capable of. And this is exactly what I want us to do this evening through this story in Acts 16. I want us to consider the power and the grace of God so that our hearts might be stirred to believe the gospel anew this evening to be inspired by the gospel's beauty and its power, to be changed by it, even right now, even today. And we're going to do this, again, by looking at this story of a little church that is birthed right here in Acts 16. Uh, This is the story of how Paul planted a new church in a city called Philippi. Uh, When you read uh, Philippians in the New Testament, that is a letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to this church. Uh, Philippi as a city was an urban center and it was the largest uh, church of that region. And what Luke, who is the the author of of this uh, book, the book of Acts, what he recounts here is three stories of uh, conversion. Uh, Three stories of changed lives that uh, came from that original ministry of that church. The church in Philippi was a uniquely great church. It's the only letter to any New Testament church that we have from the Apostle Paul in which he doesn't critique or give them a criticism or confront them about something. In other words, as far as we know, the church in Philippi was the strongest, healthiest church that the Apostle Paul planted, which I think is going to seem strange when we read about how this church got its start and who its founding members were. So I'm going to read this story for us again. Megan just read it for us, but I'm going to read and pay attention to these three accounts of conversion that Luke is going to give us here. All right, let's pick up in in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened, as, as, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and they are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, when when we started Providence Church, uh, for the most part, uh, Will, Todd, and I, we just got a bunch of our friends and family together, and we asked them to help us start this church. It was a great luxury and a great joy for us to be able to do that. But Paul doesn't have that same luxury here. He didn't know anybody in Philippi. He wasn't even planning on going to this city. The Spirit of God called him there in a dream. And what we see in this account of the beginning of the church in Philippi are three absolutely different persons. They were racially very different. Lydia was from Thyatira, which is a city in Asia Minor. And so even though Philippi was in Europe, Lydia was Asian. Uh, The slave girl, according to the commentaries that I looked at, was almost certainly uh, a native Greek. And then the jailer, uh, we know from historical tradition, would have been Roman because all of these uh, government jobs like he had would have been reserved uh, for ex-military Roman uh, soldiers. So we have an Asian, a Greek, uh, and a Roman. Uh, They were also very different economically. Lydia, judging from the fact that she had a house both in Turkey and in Greece, was a pretty wealthy woman. She was very successful. The text says that she was a dealer in purple dyes, which was just one way uh, for people to become uh, wealthy. Uh, In modern-day terms, Lydia is a successful CEO in the fashion industry. Uh, She was a person of power, of wealth, and of influence. But when you get to the story of the slave girl, you have someone on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. She is completely powerless. She's utterly exploited. She owned nothing. She didn't even own herself. You could not sink much lower in public estimation at the time than to be a female slave. She is a modern-day, teenage, drug-addicted prostitute, right? And then you get to this jailer. And when you, when you see him, you, just, you have this sort of blue-collar, hard-working, middle-class, ex-military type of guy. He probably lives up in Cedar Park somewhere, right? And these are all three people who never meet. They never cross paths. They're from utterly different worlds. And what about their spiritual backgrounds? Uh, Lydia knew a lot about the God of the Bible. The text says that she was a worshiper of God, which is a technical term uh, to refer to Gentiles who had turned away from their pagan roots and had be- who had begun seeking the God of the Hebrew Bible. Right? Lydia was a person who was spiritually seeking. Uh, the slave girl, on the other hand, wasn't uh, religious at all. She was demon-possessed. 
She was exploited by her owners. These guys were making money off of her through fortune-telling. She was spiritually, socially, economically, psychologically afflicted. She needed to be liberated across the board in her life. The jailer um, is different from both of them. He's this, again, this hard-working, sort of down-to-earth, pragmatic man who probably doesn't go to church. This is the kind of guy who says, show me something. Show me something concrete. Prove it to me. He probably had no interest in spiritual things. And all three of these people are utterly different. We have a religious woman, we have an oppressed slave girl, and we have a secular man. So how is it that these three people came to be the core team of one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament? Why would God choose these three people? Because it's supernatural. Right? It puts the power of the gospel on display for all to see. The power of the gospel to save sinners, to reconcile people in community. It's about the gospel. And what I love about this story is how God reaches each of them in unique ways. I want to show you from this story how the gospel speaks to each of these people regardless of their backgrounds or beliefs. Uh, let's start with Lydia. Um, she's sort of a picture of the gospel for the religious. Uh, Lydia, as I said, was, was trying to understand the Bible. And she was praying, she was worshiping on the Sabbath. Um, Lydia had sort of tried paganism, and, and now she was moving on towards morality. Uh, and the text says that Paul showed up, he sat down and began speaking to the women that were gathered there, and he gave them a message. And then verse 14 says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Greek word that is used here for respond literally means to get it. God opened the eyes of Lydia's heart and she got it. She was attracted to it. Paul preached the gospel of Jesus to Lydia. God opened her heart and she got it. She was converted to faith in Jesus. Lydia had an intellectual need, and her conversion came through what? came through a Bible discussion. It came through um, rational arguments explaining the gospel, rational arguments that made the truths of the gospel beautiful to Lydia. And this is exactly what religious people need, to find the gospel beautiful, Not just useful, but beautiful. And that's exactly what God gave Lydia. He opened her heart to the beauty of the gospel through the preaching of Paul. Uh, Some of you are like Lydia. Uh, like You know things about God. You grew up in the church. But you tend to find God more useful than you do beautiful. You are prone towards being religious. And what you need is to be awakened, to be renewed in your sense uh, of the under, your understanding of the gospel, to, um, to be aroused in your love and affection for the person of Jesus. Uh, just this week in, in my gospel community gathering, we were uh, sitting there on Wednesday night sharing a meal together, and we were gathered around the dinner table uh, sharing just about what God had been doing in our lives and praying for one another. And uh, one of the girls uh, in, our, in our GC uh, spoke up and began to tell us about how God had recently converted her to faith in Jesus, just in the past few months. So she started telling us her story, and she said that uh, she had grown up uh, in the church 
Her dad had, had brought her and raised her up uh, to want to follow Jesus, right? But as she got older, it, it all just seemed like a bunch of morality, a bunch of rules to follow. And so as she got to the age where she could make her own decisions, she sort of just went her own way, and she abandoned the faith in Jesus. She began seeking uh, happiness in whatever she wanted to do. Uh, but she continued to share with us that as she did that, as she sought happiness and fulfillment and all these things, it, it, it really didn't work. Right? It just left her more empty than before. It was exhausting. Right? And she just eventually just came to the end of herself. Right? She didn't know what else to do. And it was in that moment that God began to meet her, and she turned and began, started seeking after God. And God used people in her life, God used a community in her life to begin showing her the gospel and what it truly means to love and to follow Jesus. And she said that just at some point in, her, in, in that seeking after God, she just got it. God made it real to her. God made the gospel beautiful to her. And she was converted into faith in Jesus. Uh, religious people need just that very thing. They need to find the gospel beautiful and not just useful. Let's look now at the slave girl who is a picture of the gospel for the oppressed. Uh, this slave girl was wild, right? She was filled with an evil spirit uh, and she was following Paul and Silas around and she was crying out, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who were proclaiming the way of salvation. Uh, this girl knew that there was a way of salvation, but she wasn't really interested in it, right? She hated it. She was enslaved on the inside to an evil master. And what Paul does here with this girl as he turns to her, eventually he just gets annoyed and he speaks out against her evil master and says, you are not strong and all-powerful. Jesus is all-strong and powerful. Your name is not great and glorious. The name of Jesus is great and glorious. And so by that name, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And by the power of God, at that very moment, this evil spirit leaves her. And she saw Jesus as the great master. And this slave girl had a psychological need. And what does God give her? A powerful experience of rescue. She needed to be liberated. She needed to be liberated spiritually, socially, and economically. She needed a powerful experience of the gospel. Uh, about five years ago, um, I, I met this guy. He and I became uh, pretty good friends. And my friend at that time, when I met him, was an alcoholic. And he had about a, a 10-year relationship uh, with alcohol. Um, and it was, as you can imagine, uh, destroying uh, his life. Um, shortly after I met him, uh, he got married to a beautiful girl. And again, as you can imagine, this entered his marriage and it began destroying uh, his marriage. It just began spiraling out of control. It got worse and worse. Uh, he would call me in the middle of the night sometimes, just drunk, uh, not knowing exactly what he was saying, but it was coming from somewhere uh, inside of him, and he would just tell me, oh, Kendall, I, I don't know where I'm at with God. I'm just really afraid that I'm going to end up on the wrong side of this thing, right? I would try and console him. I would try and speak to him, try and calm him down, but he was just like, you know what? That Christian stuff is just, it's just not going to work on me, and so he continued spiraling out of control with his life, at the, end of, at the end of her rope, uh, his wife reached out to a couple of us, sent us a message, and just said, look, I, I don't know what else to do, um, 
sort of this is this is the end for me. I need to we need to do something. Something needs to happen here. I can't handle this anymore. And so a few of my friends uh, met with this guy, sort of an intervention. They began speaking truth to him, calling him out on his sin, calling him out on his self-centeredness. And he, he said that uh, as those guys were speaking to him, he just knew it was true. And it was God speaking to him. They began telling him about the path that he was headed down. And he knew in his heart that it was true and that it was God revealing himself to him. And that moment changed his life. He began repenting of his sin. He began walking in faith, in community. He began moving in love towards his wife. And now two years later, he hasn't touched a drop of alcohol. He said recently, I just feel this unbearable weight lifted off of me. I feel so liberated to pursue a life of loving Jesus and loving my wife. And this is what oppressed people need. They need a powerful experience of the gospel. Uh, a little application for us. Um, when we look at someone in our life and think, well, you know what? That person would never become a Christian. That person's never really going to change, never really going to get over that thing. And no matter what it is that's at the root of our unbelief, whether it's contempt towards that person, uh, whether it's a lack of hope, in that moment we are forgetting the very principle that brought us to faith. We're forgetting that the gospel is a divine power. There is no one outside the reach of God. There is no one who is beyond the power of the gospel to bring salvation and to change their life. So let me ask you some questions. Uh, Do you talk about people like they're outside the reach of God? Uh, Do you talk about people like their sins are greater than your own? Uh, Do you talk, do you pray about people in a way that's hopeful for how the gospel can change them? Uh, But our unbelief isn't just restricted to others. Uh, When we look at our own life and think, you know what, I'm just never going to get past that sin. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm never going to be faithful in that area of my life. You know what, I'm just not the type of person that can be disciplined or have an intimate walk with God or have an impact in the kingdom of God. When we do that, we are forgetting that the gospel is a divine power. Like, listen, if you are united with Christ, then you have the spirit of the living God indwelling your very person. You have the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead living inside of you. And so again, let me ask you, uh, if, how would your life be different if you truly believed that? If you lived like you had that kind of power inside of you, how would your life change? An unbelief that we cannot change is an unbelief in the power of the, of, uh, the gospel. The gospel is not for any just one type of person, the person who has a certain background or upbringing or temperament or personality, who only has certain struggles or who has certain giftings or capabilities. The gospel is for you right now. No matter your condition, no matter your struggles, it's a divine power to convert you unto faith in Jesus and then to begin to change you for the rest of your life to become more and more like Jesus. And so, Providence Church, we must believe in the power of the gospel to change lives, including our own, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do. Uh, Finally, let's look at how God 
saves the jailer. So we have the gospel for the uh, religious, the gospel for the oppressed, and now it comes the gospel uh, for the secular. All right, so when the, when the slave girl loses her evil spirit, she also loses this ability that she had to tell people's fortunes, which um, obviously enrages her owners because they can't make money off of her anymore. Uh, so these guys start a racial riot in the city. Right? They incite anger against Paul and Silas for bringing all these Jewish customs into their Roman city. Uh, the crowd rises up against Paul and Silas and has them taken uh, to Roman officials um, there who have handed them over to this jailer, right? and he has thrown them into prison. Uh, this jailer takes Paul and Silas, he puts them in the inner cell, and he puts their feet uh, in stocks. Um, putting someone's feet in stocks was a form of, tor- of torture because what they would do is you'd put them up against the wall and you would spread their legs really far apart, right? And so eventually they would just begin cramping. And we, we don't exactly know why he does this. It doesn't look like uh, that he was commanded to do this, but he does it anyways. And just the picture that we get of this guy is just one of a, a again, just a hard, calloused man. Well, it doesn't... Um, <clears throat> um, so... Despite all of this, Paul and Silas, they've been taken in the jail, right? they've been beaten, um, they've been tortured, they've been abused, and all of this unjustly, unfairly. So they're in this prison, um, and at night, night comes around, and Paul and Silas are there, and they're praying, and they're singing hymns of praise to God. Like, What would that have looked like uh, to this jailer? Uh, certainly he had never seen something like that before. A people with such deep an abiding joy, even in the midst of unjust suffering. In prison, you strip someone of all the things that give them joy, their health, success, hope, their love, their life. And yet Paul and Silas are worshiping God in the midst of all these things that have been stripped away from them. It's because they have deep joy. And then right in that moment, as they're singing, all of a sudden this earthquake happens. And it shakes the foundations of the prison and everyone that was in it was freed from their chains. The doors had been opened. It was the law of the land at that time that if a prisoner had escaped under the watch of a soldier, that this soldier was to be executed. He was to be killed. And so this guy starts freaking out. But much to the jailer's surprise, when everything settles, there everyone is, right where they had left him. Paul and Silas hadn't escaped. They could have taken off, right? They didn't even deserve to be there. Paul was a Roman citizen. He didn't deserve to be in there. But instead, they stayed. And they kept everyone else from leaving as well. And when they did this, they overcame evil with good. You see, they saved this man's life. They extended overwhelming kindness to to this man who had needlessly tortured them. And this Roman jailer who was interested in concrete pragmatism, he rushes in, he falls before Paul and Silas because he realizes in that moment uh, that he has nothing as concrete, as pragmatic as they have. He's never seen joy like that. And so he asked them, what must I do to be saved? You have something that I don't have. What is it that God gives the jailer? He gives him concrete pragmatic proof of faith in him. People who have no background with God, they often need concrete proof of God. They need to see it lived out in front of them. This guy didn't need to simply hear the gospel. He needed to see it. 
Uh, I want to tell you one more story uh, of a friend of mine. Uh, about two years ago, uh, my wife Ashley um, began uh, a friendship with this girl that she worked with. Um, and this girl was, same thing, she was a secular girl, uh, did not have much interest in Christianity at all, certainly did not believe in Christianity, did not want to follow Jesus, did not have much interest in those things, but she did have an interest in friendship. And so uh, she and Ashley just struck up a really strong uh, friendship, and Ashley just began inviting this girl into her life. Uh, there's a, a number of us here at Providence that gather together on Tuesday nights. We have good conversation. We have good drinks. And so Ashley would just start inviting her to that. She came almost every week, right? And she began meeting lots of you guys. Uh, when it came time for her to move to a different part of the city, uh, Patrick Campbell showed up in a U-Haul van to help her move. Patrick had met her just a couple times, but there he was. It was me, Ashley, and Patrick helping her move over. After a while, as uh, Ashley began to get deeper and deeper in her friendships, as as this girl began to get more and more comfortable, eventually she started showing up here on Sundays. She started participating in our service. She got pretty comfortable, and she started to to begin to really enjoy it. She began to see the gospel lived out amongst her. When her birthday came around, uh, she invited lots of Providence people. There was actually more Providence people at this girl's birthday party than in any other circle of her friends. And I'd like to tell you that uh, she was converted into faith in Jesus, but that hasn't happened yet. Ashley and I are praying for her. Uh, She actually moved this summer up to another part of the country, um, but uh, she and Ashley still stay in touch. And recently... Uh, She sent uh, this text message to Ashley as they were going back and forth, recounting stories of what had been going on that day. Um, This girl says, I was telling my family how inclusive and comfortable it was at Providence. I miss it. I'm realizing how thankful I am to have had that experience at Providence with all of you. You have no idea. She began to see the gospel, uh, not just to hear it, although she heard it many times when she was sitting in the pews. She began to see it lived out. We have three very different people, all changed by the same gospel. We have a religious woman, we have an oppressed girl, and we have a secular man. Very different, all changed by the same gospel. There were undoubtedly many converts during this time in the church of Philippi. But Luke chooses and gives us these three stories in Acts 16. He selects these three for mention, not because they were particularly notable in themselves, but because... They demonstrate how God breaks down dividing barriers, how he unites people of very different kinds through the gospel. And Luke wants to teach us something about the gospel. He wants us to see something uh, about the nature of the gospel. I think he wants us to see that the gospel is a, a divine power that brings about supernatural unity. There's no way that these three people would have worked together. And there's nothing else that could have brought this kind of unity amongst people so completely different. There's a famous prayer that Jewish men would pray when they woke up in the morning. You can Google this, I did. Uh, It says, O Lord God, I thank you that I was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. They would pray this every morning. The Apostle Paul almost certainly prayed this prayer. Every morning as he was pursuing his life of of becoming a Jewish Pharisee. <clears throat> and here he is, after his own conversion, preaching the gospel to who? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. 
these people he grew up despising, but now they're his brothers and sisters. And it would be hard to imagine a more different group than this, a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer. They were racially, socially, uh, physiologically, uh, psychologically, spiritually. They were just worlds apart. Yet they were all changed by the same gospel. They were welcomed in the same church as founding members. You can't contain or control the gospel. It's not for any one type of person. It's not, it's not a doctrinal formula to be memorized. It's not a code of ethics to be obeyed. The gospel is a beauty to be seen. It's a power to be experienced, and it's a transformation of our entire being. And as all those things come into place, as they actually begin to take place in our lives, it forms a whole new community. It forms a gospel community on mission for God. Let me pray that that would be true of us as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.